Amen. 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 Please take a seat. The youth are going off to follow the party with Naomi and Philippa. Now is your cue to escape the long rambling sermon. <laughs> Excellent. So, we are, for those of you who are maybe just dropping in, um, who haven't been with us since October, I think we began, we have been uh, doing this thing, this sort of year-long project called the Year of Biblical Literacy. It's kind of like joining together all of our little preaching series into a year-long sense of curriculum, asking some tough questions at the beginning, looking at the whole shape of the Bible, um, digging into bits of the Old Testament. We've got to this bit, anyway, in the year where we're asking the questions, some of the really tough questions around, like we've engaged with the Bible for this part of the year, and then we're like, but there's some things, like there's some really big questions that have opened up in the midst of it. Um, and so we've got these four weeks called The God I Don't Understand. And this week we've got a real humdinger. Um, we're looking at bits of the Old Testament, some of the violent bits of the Old Testament. How do we make sense of that? Um, before we get to that, this is a good little plug. Part of the whole year-long endeavor has been um, promoting a sort of reading our Bible through in a year. Um, we've got a, um, a suggested program schedule of that. Most of us have sort of fallen off and got back on at different points in the year. That's okay. The point is that we read the scriptures, um, that we get involved, that we get our noses stuck in them. Now is a really good point um, to jump straight back on. We've, we're pretty much coming to the end of the Old Testament. We're just doing the, um, the, the books of Chronicles, which are sort of a recap of the story and telling it from a particular uh, perspective. Um, before then, we, in a couple of weeks, I think it is, we get to uh, Matthew's Gospel at the beginning of the New Testament. So if you have fallen off the, the year of biblical literacy, daily reading bandwagon, um, that's fine. Um, but now's a good point. You, you can just jump back in at any point. It's just great. Um, get stuck into the Bible. That's that plug. Let's begin violence in the Old Testament. A little tick box exercise as we begin, seemingly unrelated. Hopefully it will make a bit more sense later on. Um, anyone watch Eurovision last night? <laughs> lots, of, lots of people not admitting to it, um, at least. I didn't watch it. Um, uh, but that could be ringing in your ears, I don't know, as I ask this question. Are you proud to be British? Yes. Mental, you don't have to reveal your answers just in case it gets embarrassing later on. Um, are you proud to be British? Are you humbled to be British? Are you grateful to be British? You can check any of the boxes that apply mentally and remember your results. Next question to ask yourself. Where is conflict in your life? Where is your conflict zone? And we've got some crosshairs just to, to help us illustrate that. Nope, back one. There we are. Where's the conflict in your life? Who is your enemy? It could operate on different levels, I know. Um, but just ask yourself these sorts of questions as we begin. 
Where is the conflict? Who is it that slips into your crosshairs or you into theirs? A rival? A colleague? A spouse? Got it? Okay. Hopefully, as we look at violence, tricky questions of violence in the Old Testament, some of what we think about uh, will speak to, um, speak to us on different levels, on some of the big sense of national identity, questions of navigating that, and of issues of our interpersonal conflict, how we navigate that, what we're called to in the midst of that. First thing, so these four weeks, the God I don't understand, right? That's the title. The first thing to say when it comes to the God I don't understand is, of course, we don't understand God. A while back, I drew this, this big circle on a piece of paper that was supposed to represent everything that could be known in the universe. And then I drew a little circle on it, and that represented the little speck of knowledge that you or I have within the grand picture. From our little speck of knowledge, you know, who are we? to understand the God who stands apart from all of this, who made it all, the creator who holds it in being. You know, First thing, the God I don't understand, yet of course we don't understand. We can take a slice of humility and be slow to presume that we should neatly understand this great, this good God, this beyond us, holy God. So that's a little first caveat to say. Um, and with that in mind, let's enter the confusion of our readings. And Judith and Paul are going to come up. We've got two readings. Most good Anglican churches would have at least two readings, I think, and a psalm. Um, we've sung a few songs, but now we're going to have two readings. Um, and they're both going to stand here. And there's sort of a, a bit of a stereo effect to go on. So Judith, if, Judith is rep- if you can't stand over here, Judith, and represent... Um, brutal Old Testament violent passage. Joshua chapter 11, if you'd like to turn to it, um, starting at verse 6. And Paul, you get the, um, the nice, beautiful Jesus passage. And he's going to be reading from Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. So if you'd like to have it open, follow on. It's Joshua 11, it's Matthew 5. Ladies first. <coughs> Okay, so Joshua 6, it's page 227 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, no, Joshua 11, sorry. Pull that right close. Yep. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them Stick the microphone right in. Sorry, do you want me to hold this? <laughs> right, so the waters of Maraman attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to Greater Sidon. The and microphone is not working very well, apparently. Do you want to try this one? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Sorry, no, we're sorry. So shall we start again or shall we Let's just carry start. on? Um, let's start again. Listen to this, because this is, this is um, interesting. <laughs> the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. 
because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to Greater Sidon, to Misrephoth, Maim, and to the Valley of Mizpah on the east, and no survivors were left. Joshua did it to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Thank you. And what's Jesus got to say? Matthew 5, uh, chapter... Yeah, Matthew, chap- Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 45. An eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, hand over your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Thank you. Now close your eyes and picture someone that you really admire. Now imagine that you're you're following them and they don't know you're following they don't know that you're following them. And they go around the corner and you observe them doing something grossly out of character. Anyone else thinking of pulse one? And, um, and you observe someone like Paul Swan, um, I don't know, uh, pushing someone off a wheelchair, or um, uh, picking up a brick, throwing it f- through a, um, the Sony shop window, and walking off with a TV. And you're left reeling, you're like, what on earth is going on? Is, is that even Paul Swan that I, that I was, was following? Who is? Do I even know who he is anymore? Or whoever it was. This is exactly what happened to me. 
Well, you can open your eyes again. Um, when I was 12, um, and um, oh, let me introduce you to someone. This is my pa. He would have been 86 just last week. Um, he died uh, last year. And um, this was the man who would do anything for me, right? I, I had a football tournament. I told him about it. He'd be there. I ran into the, the branch on his beloved fruit tree. He went straight out there with his handsaw, chopped off that branch, and, uh, and taught it a lesson for, for touching his, his grandson. Um, when, when I'd been in primary school, I'd heard about the horrors of smoking. And so I got his entire duty-free mega pack of cigarettes, and I put them in the kitchen bin. And this was the man who, because I asked him to, gave up the smoking. So imagine my surprise. One evening, down at Romford Dogs, he'd sometimes take us down to the, the dog track, the Greyhound racing. Um, and uh, my surprise, I'm sat next to him, and he's got his big, thick leather jacket on, and, he, um, and I just happened to look down into the pocket on this thing. And to my horror, I see a packet of Benson and Hedges. <laughs> How could this be? There must be some other explanation going on. There was only one way to know, for sure. So I followed him to find out. Now then, Jesus, he's the light of the world. He is, according to Colossians, the image of the invisible God. He shows us what God is like, what God is really like. He shows us the God of self-sacrificing, redemptive love, the God who'd rather sacrifice himself, give up his own life, rather than smite his enemies. It's the Jesus who, as we heard, teaches us to follow this non-violent way of being, of loving in the world. But then we read through the Bible in the whole year, as some of us are in the midst of doing, and you get to those bits, like in Joshua and numerous other places, if we're honest, where it's like, to quote my wife, wowzeroonies. Like, <laughs> how, do you make, how do you make sense of that? And as Christians, you know, there's, there's bits where God's people are, are being violent, fine, maybe. Uh, there's bits where they're doing it at his explicit command. There's bits where the actual violence seems to be directly attributed to God somehow. And as Christians, we read these passages properly, correctly, um, in the light of Christ. God, you know, Christ is, Jesus Christ gives us the supreme revelation of who God is like, and we, we view everything through that lens. But as you do that, as you look back, it kind of opens up this, this big chasm, this, this gap between God who we see in Jesus and the God who we see acting in some of this stuff in the Old Testament in particular. In short, Jesus is altogether beautiful. The violence is actually horrible. This leaves us in a state of what they call cognitive dissonance. That's like the, the mental mismatch. You know, because we've got these deep-set intuitions of goodness and beauty and goodness and beauty. These are, the, these are sort of the things echoing deep in our hearts. And we know the goodness of God. We've come, we see it in Jesus Christ, the God who would give himself in love, the generosity, the grace, 
And with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we've come to know his love for us. And it's amazing. But then we read parts of this God-inspired word through which he is revealing himself to us. And we do not see that goodness and that beauty. We see the ugliness and the horror of, at times, a brutal violence. That's the cognitive dissonance. That's the mental mismatch. Now, faced with this uncomfortable kind of mismatch, we can be tempted to one of two responses. Firstly, there's the, oh, well, shrug, smile, and accept it. And often, maybe that, if we're, if we're kind of self-aware and honest with, with what's going on in that kind of easy smile of acceptance, it could be because our lives have become so invested uh, in the sort of church community that, that anything that threatens to rock the boat, <laughs> um, rock the sort of peace that we have found and the, the sort of place of belonging, actually we can't go there in our heads, so we just sort of shrug, smile, accept. The other response is this wholesale rejection. Oh, this doesn't stack up, this whole thing. And, and yeah, you know, I, I liked Jesus, but the, whole, the whole, whole system doesn't make sense, so I'm, I'm out of here. And perhaps underneath some of those occasions, if we were to dig a little deeper, there could be all sorts of other reasons as well uh, why the grievance or, or the problem with, with that person or whatever is, is propelling someone out of... Um, but for whatever reason, those are um, two of the responses. Neither is a biblical model of faith. The first one is, you know, the easy shrug, accept it, yeah, whatever, um, I trust God. Uh, that's the model of faith you find in cults. And the second one, you know, just rejecting the whole thing for whatever reasons rarely takes us uh, to fruitful places. The biblical model of faith affirms that wrestling is good. Wrestling is good. When it comes to the biblical model of faith, when it comes to the God I don't understand, of course we recognize that, yes, we're not going to understand him. Um, yes, we need to proceed with patience, prayer, um, walking in obedience anyway. Um, but in that place, the wrestling, the asking the questions, the honesty, bring it on. Go for it. Ask the questions. Patiently. With perseverance. God, in his grace, in my experience, will nudge us along in due course into understanding. May it be so. Think of Jacob, Genesis chapter 32. That, must, that kind of, is, he spends the night wrestling with this mysterious embodiment of, of God. And he's clinging on to him and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So much so that his name, Jacob, gets changed to Israel, from which we get the Israelites, people foundational to our story as the people of God, is, is people invited into this wrestling, struggling, trying to make sense of you, God. Who are you? Asking these uh, big, wonderful sorts of questions. Go for it. The Bible invites and applauds all of your questions, struggles, doubts, complaints, even accusations leveled against God. There is space for that. He's big enough. And in his grace, he may well uh, nudge us along into further understanding. Within the church, we find great company on this. Back in the third century, there's a guy called Origen who talked about these passages in the Bible that we find unworthy of God. Even Calvin had similar sorts of... Calvin was a pretty severe guy, if you know your church history back in the sort of Reformation times. He talked about these passages. Um, they had similar phrases to um, Origen, that they're unworthy 
I've got these portraits that we find of God that uh, don't look a whole lot like Jesus on the cross, God himself dying for our sins, the love that redeems, that brings all things back together. What's going on in some of these passages? We're going to do a bit of wrestling. That's what I did that night with my pa at Romford Dogs. I followed him. Uh, He went to put a couple of quid on dog number four or something. I waited 30 seconds. Made my excuses. I was going to the toilet. Followed him at a stealth-like distance. And what did I discover? He walked a little way. Then he reached into his pocket. He pulled out that packet of Benson and Hedges cigarettes. He lit one up and he started smoking it as if he'd been smoking his whole life. (laughs) And it rocked my my naive um, 12-year-old. I didn't tell anyone about my, my secret that I discovered. I just sat on it. This could be where the analogy breaks down because, um, you know, I, upon investigation, I found out to my 12-year-old horror that my grandpa was a smoker. Upon investigation into who God is, just as a spoiler, it might be that we find out that he is not the genocidal, genocidal maniac that, um, that we uh, are, are troubled with at this point. I should also say that, um, you know, I fully believe that smokers will get into heaven. Uh, but they'll probably get there quicker than the rest of us. The, 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 the chances are. <laughs> not my joke, not my joke. Um, okay, let's do some wrestling. Let's push into Joshua. I've got four quick things I want to say about Joshua chapter 11. Uh, the first of which is context. Archaeologists and Hebrew scholars um, agree that much of the um, mass civilian casualties that we and straightforwardly imagine from a sort of surface reading of the text did not uh, take place. There were some translation issues here. Uh, For starters, where you read cities or towns in your English translation, we commonly think of civilian population centers straight away. Um, Actually, a fortification is much more, uh, um, think kind of Great Wall of China rather than Beijing. You know, this was a sort of fortified structure from which civilians would have fled uh, in ancient times of conflict. And so, uh, you know, we commonly imagine some kind of middle-aged scenario with everyone getting into the castle uh, against the marauding outsiders. Actually, some some battle contention was going on. The the pattern was that the men, women, and children, the non-soldiers, actually, would have got out of there. uh, And so the soldiers would have remained. Similarly, where you read kings, a, a, a more um, fitting translation, you know, we sort of imagine the noble, someone like our queen, um, getting mercilessly slain. A more accurate translation into our contemporary imaginations would be something like a warlord or a general. Uh, there's also translation issues with numbers uh, around this thing. Back in chapter 8 of Joshua, um, uh, you've got Joshua, and they, they take the, the place called AI, I? I I don't know how you, it's just, it's a short little word, AI name. They call it I. Uh, So they take I, and it says that 12,000 were were slain. The Hebrew word there is Aleph, which is commonly rendered a thousand, as in 12 Alephs. It also, many scholars would say, actually, it's it's the same word used for a unit or a battalion. So rather than 12,000 civilians, what an utter terrible, you know, just like unimaginable horror, actually 12 units of soldiers 
is, is, is probably a more fitting translation. So it begins to kind of rein in some of the ugliness that we per first perceived. The ugliness um, is perhaps not quite um, as ugly as we first imagine. Uh, other things to say in the context are uh, in the literary context. So the, the style of writing, the style of writing up these battle reports was a set genre, and the genre was of um, bravado and exaggeration, kind of like you'd find in a football change room after the match where we're like, yes, we absolutely smashed them. And it was 3-2, you know. <laughs> um, that's, that's the sort of um, language. Uh, you see it all over the place um, in that, uh, you know, contemporary writings of battle reports. In actual fact, when you get into the, um, you know, looking at the battle reports of other cultures, um, this makes rather tame reading, and it's not glorifying rape. It's not talking about the, the mountains of dead bodies that they managed to accumulate um, and, and some horrifically um, violent stuff um, that we couldn't imagine. The other thing to say on that, if you're not convinced by that kind of genre of, um, what did I call it? Ba the sort of stylized battle reports that were full of the, yeah, we absolutely smashed them, we totally annihilated them. It doesn't actually make literary sense. If you carry on reading, the people that were totally annihilated, man, still appear <laughs> later on in the, um, so you see that, that's exactly what is, is going on in this text. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is another example of this. The Lord commands that they will be completely, utterly destroyed the next breath and do not intermarry with them as well. <laughs> Consistently, the focus is on driving out a culture, a religion, not on annihilating people. And this is significantly progressive, especially when you bear in mind all sorts of opportunity that there seem to have been for them to embrace and include the outsider. There's some troubling violence, I'm not trying to sidestep that completely, but actually in the midst of that picture, in the sort of relative, relative to its context, uh, the violence we read in these, these bits in Joshua uh, is actually the Israelite warfare practice. They had all sorts of, all sorts of rules limiting um, what they were to do, limiting the spoil that they could take, limiting the greed, saying no to, to just extending the campaign, extend, land grabs prohibited. There was a very defined, controlled, constrained operation. Um, they don't always keep to that. And there's other offensive battles that you can read about, but without a sense of God saying, amen to any of that. So you get this, this whole picture going on. And that, that, that smattering of individuals that appear throughout the Old Testament of outsiders who've been brought in and they're suddenly playing these significant parts in the story gives a window on the reality that was not one race of people coming in and smashing everyone else, but actually a new culture, God carving out space for a new sort of culture in the midst of a brutal, violent context that we can't really readily imagine. And actually there being serious, meaningful, taken up invitation on the outside. Think of Rahab the prostitute, think of Moses' wife. There's others that, that come in and, and you think, okay, this isn't the um, straightforward, dominating, annihilating all others narrative that sometimes from just looking at one little passage that we could be led to imagine. Second thing I want to say is also context. 
And this is paying attention to the context in which we are reading some of this stuff within. So my, my pa, who I mentioned before, this is the last time I'll mention him, um, but he, he grew up on the outskirts of Glasgow uh, in poverty, really. He was the, one of 10 kids, and he was the oldest boy amongst them. So he was telling me how his, his kind of regular morning routine in the cold of winter would be to get a, um, a sheet of newspaper, roll it up into some sort of torch thing, set fire to it, carry it outside into the cold to hold underneath the outdoor tap to melt it enough so that the, the water would come out so that he could have his morning bracing wash. I can't imagine that. It's so far from, from, from my reality. When it comes to reading an ancient text from 21st century Britain, we've got to acknowledge the ordered, stable, and comfortable context from which we are reading. What is so far from our experience, especially my generation, me? We have not seen our mothers raped. We have not seen children cut down before our eyes. Our homes have not been burned. Our borders are not threatened. And in fact, law and order in our country has done such a relatively brilliant job of holding some of the disintegrating, corrupting, um, abominable forces of, of human violence at bay in check. And we reap all sorts of benefits of that. But where all of that breaks down, in parts of the world today where all of that is breaking down, it becomes much easier to see how a sense of God's judgment and justice Expressions of that that could seem, whoa, brutal to us, actually are not just legitimate, but it's like finally. You know, I, I heard a reconciliation worker from Central African Republic talking um, two weeks ago about, uh, she told a story of, of the horror of the violence there that I could, it was previously unimaginable to me. And I won't tell you the story because it, it's, it's disturbing and that's probably all you remember from the, the whole morning and we want to talk about other things. But it involved um, a woman being forced to kill family members, to cook family members. Can, can you imagine? Like, if you take any war-torn region around the world at the moment, the message, the realization that there is a God who watches, who sees, who remembers the fact that there will be judgment and justice and consolation in God. That's an essential part of the good news, of the reality of God's goodness, the gospel, the, the restoration, redemption of all things even if it's difficult sometimes for us from our sofas to, to, to comprehend. In fact, God is far more patient than we would like him to be in most of these scenarios. It was like 400 years, you know, according to the, the biblical, biblical narrative before. You know, that's 400 years of, of his people being enslaved before God rises to come to their 
to their rescue. The sobering thing for us in our context, reading this stuff, has got to be that we sit on the powerful side of things. The extent to which our comfort, our stability, our peace, our prosperity is built upon historic violent oppression, colonialism, complete with things like the slave trade. That's why, you know, going back to our, our tick chart at the beginning, actually I'd hesitate before saying that I'm proud to be British. There are real parts of our history for which we should be ashamed. The greatness that we enjoy is a testimony in part to a history of violence and oppression, some of which arguably continues in this system, the economic system, how it's set up at the moment. The last thing a text like Joshua does is give us warrant to go and you know, say, extend our British empire again, make Britain great again, or whatever it would be. No. It speaks of God's liberation for the poor and the powerless at the expense of the rich and the powerful. So I'm absolutely grateful to be British. I'm humbled to be British. All, the, all of the, the benefits that we enjoy, wonderful, good. But I wouldn't say I'm proud to be British. Third thing to say. The Bible represents a single conversation, not a single voice. And it has to be heard and understood within this conversation. How it disagrees with itself, how it corrects itself, how it develops ideas along the way. How it comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely right to take that as the focal point, our definition, our baseline, when we're trying to struggle with some of these more difficult bits. What we have in the Bible is a faithful testimony to the reality of God involving himself with a messy, broken humanity. A messy, broken, real people, prone to violence, vengeance, prone to a bit of ugly nationalism along the way. Some of this has not been nicely polished out of the biblical conversation along the way. It's still there. And so without wanting to be you know, quick or confident on my judgment of any particular passage in question, there is space, I think, for, for seeing the ugliness of humanity in, in some of the write-up um, that we see in some of these violent episodes of the Bible. Could it be, in fact, that God allows this to happen? That he allows his name to become associated with some of our ugly bits? That that's what it takes, actually, for him to humble himself and you know, bring about salvation uh, in the midst of this world. You know, if so, then even like the ugliest bits that we find really hard to soften up with you know, understanding bits of the context, which goes an awful long way, actually, in many cases. But sometimes where, we, where it's still it's like, wow, the Roonies, actually, could that be a testimony to the humility and the grace of God who's willing to, to stoop down, share in some of the shame of association with people like us, meeting us where we're at, bringing us up into something beautiful. Finally, 
after paying attention to the context of the passage, after paying attention to the context we read from, after understanding a particular text in its place within this developing conversation of the Bible, we can be in a better place to begin asking the questions of what is this saying about God? What's the, the theology, the theological agenda of the passage? And something to notice here in Joshua chapter 11, and this is sort of coming into land, it's a good place for us to land today. And this is something that echoes right throughout, it's not just here, this echoes right throughout the, um, the biblical story, is this strong impulse to demilitarization, to demilitarize. So notice where it talks about the horses and the chariots and, and the Lord com unambiguously commands Joshua, you are to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. What's that about? They're to reject the weapons. These, were, these are like your ancient equivalent of aircraft carriers, right? Symbols of power used to dominate your opponents to oppress. The people of God were absolutely to say no to these things. They were to trust in God, not in weapons. They were to flesh out a whole different ordering of things to the predictable violence of might is right. They were to be holy. They were to reflect grace. Domination is not what God is about. Redemptive love is what he's about. That's the hallmark of the kingdom. The more violence you need, the less it has to do with the kingdom. This is the God who interrupts the whole system of domination and violence with the love and the mercy of the cross. He chooses to die for his enemies rather than smite them. He takes our shame on himself that we might walk free. This is the love that is the game changer at the heart of the universe. And even if there is sometimes a God-given legitimacy to um, a legitimate place for violence to hold evil at bay or to liberate the plight of an oppressed poor, actually violence is a zero-sum game. It's inherently non-creative. It does not win. Love, on the other hand, is creative. Love empowers, love humanizes, love calls out the potential, love redeems. Love is a whole new kind of powerful. So what I'd like to do is to stand and think again of your enemy. And I'm going to read out a little sort of contrast of violence and love. And as I do so, here's the questions to be asking yourself. How could love reimagine that relationship, that interaction, that non-relationship perhaps? What might the Spirit of God do? What miracle of redemption could happen? 
Because where violence destroys, love creates. Where violence escalates, love heals. Where violence coerces, love evokes. Where violence imitates, love surprises. Where violence condemns, love redeems. Where violence defends itself, love sacrifices itself. Where violence is obvious, love imagines more. And we come now around the Lord's table, remembering that central moment of his victory, his surprising victory on the cross, acknowledging that he is our peace, that he's our peacemaker. And so we can take the risk of love and see what happens. We're going to share these words of the peace. Seem like the right thing to do. So the peace of the risen Christ be always with you. Let's share with one another a sign of that peace.